This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quarantine restrictions are finally being lifted in Wuhan, China. But across the world, the outbreak of COVID-19 is getting worse. The World Health Organization has warned that the number of cases in Africa is rising exponentially. And this week, the United States recorded the most coronavirus deaths on a single day after more than 1,800 people died. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. On today's show, the danger of silent transmission. People who have no symptoms, so they don't know that they're actually infected, but they might be contagious, are transmitting the disease to others. Are masks an effective way of stopping the spread? It's intuitive to think that masks would stop the spread between members of the public. But the issue is that the scientific evidence just doesn't give you a clear-cut answer. Plus, scientists and researchers are tirelessly working to better understand the virus. But is there a risk of so-called bad science emerging? At the beginning of coronavirus, the pandemic, it seemed as though a lot of people were assuming these were fully-fledged papers, if you will, when they're really just in their infancy. In some parts of the world, notably in East Asia, wearing a mask while going for a walk or shopping or commuting to work is completely part of the culture. And as the number of cases of COVID-19 rises, so too has the demand for protective face coverings. But if you get COVID-19, just how infectious are you, even if you show no symptoms at all? And will a mask really offer protection? Slavea Chankova is The Economist healthcare correspondent. Hello, Slavea. Hello, Ken. And Alok Jha is our science and technology correspondent. Welcome, Alok. Hi, Ken. Alok, what do we know about the ways in which COVID-19 is transmitted? The way that SARS-CoV-2 is thought to travel is between droplets from an infected person to an uninfected person. These droplets might be mucus or saliva that come from the respiratory tract of the infected person and they will contain billions of viruses that could come out during speech or just breathing or most likely a cough and it sort of they fly a few meters into the air around that person. And then if an uninfected person happens to breathe them in and the virus gets to the, the throat, then they can reproduce and start and infect the other person. That's the main way it transfers. There's a possibility that it might also be uh, traveling through aerosols, but we don't know that for a fact. And what that means is very, very small particles. Um, the thing with droplets is when they come out of a person, they tend to travel a meter, maybe two meters, and then they drop to the ground and, and that's it. They don't travel very far. Aerosols, uh, which are much, much tinier and can contain fewer bits of virus, they can travel a bit further. But we don't know if that's actually the way that this virus transfers yet. Now, Slavea, researchers think that COVID-19 could be transmitted silently. What do they mean by that? 
So what this means is that people who have no symptoms, so they don't know that they're actually infected, but they might be contagious, are transmitting the disease to others. And this is something that is um, seen in many other diseases. So we know that measles, uh, the seasonal flu, HIV AIDS transmit that way. It's been known, in fact, for you know more than 100 years. There is the story in, in the history of diseases about typhoid Mary. She was basically a cook uh, to wealthy families in New York City who had typhoid, but was otherwise healthy. So as she went from one family to another, the disease followed her. And that's how the public health authorities in New York City at the time realized that the disease transmits. So there are all these people who are healthy but transmitting it. And of course, that has uh, big implications of what you might do to control the spread of a disease. Now, what evidence do we have to back up the idea that COVID-19 is spread silently? So we don't have um, very solid evidence, but we do have quite a lot of studies now that you know are piling up that strongly suggest that this is definitely happening with COVID-19. The question is how frequently it happens. So what share of all uh, transmission is a result of this sort of silent transmission where people um, don't have symptoms, don't in fact know that they're infected? The evidence that we have comes from three types of studies. Uh, The first is just looking at unique situations in which you are able to know absolutely everybody who's infected, right? So both people with symptoms and people without. And one interesting example of that is the Diamond Princess cruise ship, where a bungled quarantine led to the infections of hundreds of people with COVID-19. So on that ship... Everybody was tested, people with or without symptoms. And what uh, researchers found was that a large share of people, in fact, half of the people who tested positive for COVID-19 had no symptoms at all at the time when they were tested. The researchers then followed them up during the incubation period of two weeks and found that about 20% of people actually who tested positive never became sick. So they were completely asymptomatic, uh, yet still infected. Okay, so that's what people are actually seeing in the world. What about lab studies by people who are researching this? What these studies have involved was uh, swabbing people, so their throats and noses, and looking at the concentration of the virus. And what these studies have found is that People who were known to be infected, so they had tested positive, had very similar amount of virus to people who actually had symptoms. Now, the question is whether they can transmit the virus as efficiently, because obviously if you have symptoms, you're coughing. So you're you know, coughing a lot and these droplets that Alok was talking about fly around. Whereas if you don't have symptoms, perhaps you, know, you can only do that if you're speaking and uh, transmission may be less. But of course, uh, it's just a guess of um, whether people without symptoms can transmit it very, very efficiently. And modeling? Yes, modeling has also been used in this case. Studies that have done modeling of uh, asymptomatic transmission have uh, involved people who were infected and then for whom information was very detailed. So it was very clear who infected them. 
And when you have this kind of information, um, you can know when the person got infected. So whether uh, the person that uh, gave them COVID-19 infected them before or after they themselves had symptoms. This kind of information researchers have then put into various models to estimate the share of all infections that happened uh, through asymptomatic transmission. And estimates vary, uh, but in general, they reckon that something between a third and a half of transmissions happened from people who had no symptoms. Of course, this is just modeling, but all of this evidence collectively suggests that people without symptoms may be a very major source of transmission. Alec, masks are thought to protect against this. And across the world, people are wearing all sorts of masks, from surgical masks to N95 respirator masks, and even designer masks. How much protection do they offer, and does the protection differ? So there's no question that a mask will stop droplets from transferring between people. And in healthcare settings, all the major health authorities, the World Health Organization, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the US, Public Health England, all of them recommend that healthcare workers should wear surgical masks. These are loose-fitting things that um, you see in hospitals, and they will prevent um, droplets from moving around um, between people. Then there's the more complicated masks, the N95s, as you mentioned. These are slightly thicker, they're more rigid. The idea is that they form a seal around your face and that they can stop the droplets, but also they can stop aerosols. So if if it turns out that... um, this particular virus can travel via very tiny aerosols through the air, then the N95 should be able to stop that. But in any case, in some situations in hospitals, when a patient needs to be ventilated, for example, and have tubes put into their throat, that process itself causes aerosols to be created. So the virus then sort of spread around that way. And so therefore, healthcare workers definitely need those N95 masks in intensive care settings. So how does the advice differ between different places? It's intuitive to think that masks would stop spread between members of the public um, because there's a barrier. And, you know, technically that's correct. But the issue is that the evidence, the scientific evidence just doesn't give you a clear cut answer. Uh, The World Health Organization uh, and all the other public health bodies recommend that healthcare workers should wear masks in hospitals. That's blanket across the world. When it comes to advice for the public, it does differ depending on where you are. So, in Lombardy, in northern Italy, where the centre of that country's outbreak, it's now a law that if you go outside, you have to wear a mask. In Austria, when they start to exit lockdown, they're going to have to be wearing masks at supermarkets and food stores. And also in the Czech Republic and in Slovakia, that's also the case. In the US, the CDC has recommended that members of the public should make their own masks. So you can you do quite a good job, actually, of taking fabric from your home, you know, whether it's a tea towel or a cloth or a t-shirt or some sort, uh, folding it up um, over a few times and using rubber bands to attach it to your face. This actually is not a bad idea at all. They can stop quite a lot of the viruses and droplets and things. You have to make sure you wear it properly, seal it around your face, don't touch the front of it. The most important advice though um, for members of the public when it comes to masks, there's, there's two bits of advice. One is it, don't expect it to stop you from becoming infected you must think of it the other way around. If you possibly might be infected or you're in quarantine yourself and you have to go out, then you should wear a mask to stop infecting other people. That's the main way that you can help by wearing a mask. And the other thing you must do is you must never buy a mask 
um, whether it's a surgical mask or an N95, if it means that your local healthcare workers uh, go without, because they're the ones that really should be prioritised for all of these proper masks. You can make your own and it won't do any harm, but uh, don't uh, deplete the resources for others. Alok Jha, Slavia Chankova, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. You can read more about the way the virus spreads in The Economist. So subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. The COVID-19 pandemic is bringing immense uncertainty to citizens, governments and the global economy. Economist Radio is drawing on the expertise of our international network of correspondents to report on the crisis. On the science... The more you understand about the mechanism of a virus, the more places that there are that you can glue it up. On the economics... The banks are in a really interesting position for this crisis because last time they were maybe the cause of turmoil and this time they could be one of the arms through which the impact of the crisis is dulled. And on the politics of COVID-19... Some worst-case scenarios have a very large number of people dying. That is going to trigger very, very grave conversations about whose fault this is. For the latest on the pandemic and more, join us on Economist Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. 19 Chloroquine, which I think, as you know, it's a great malaria drug. It's worked unbelievably. It's a powerful drug on malaria. Uh, and there are signs that it works on this, some very strong signs. And in the meantime, it's been around a long time. It also works very powerfully on lupus. So uh, there are some very strong, powerful signs, and we'll have to see. But there are concerns that the studies on the drug have not met traditional medical standards. So how do you keep an eye on the integrity of scientific research? That's a task that's been taken on by Retraction Watch, a site that reports on bad scientific practices and retractions. Ivan Aransky is the co-founder. Hello, Ivan. Hi, Ken. Can you give us some examples of what you mean by bad science, and do you feel like it's increasing with the coronavirus? So bad science takes many guises. There are people who cherry-pick. It's sometimes referred to scientifically as p-hacking. You find results that line up with a very impressive claim, and then you basically draw a target around those. Um, 
you know, there are examples like Andrew Wakefield and autism being caused by vaccines, which of course we know is not true, but took 12 years for The Lancet to retract in 2010. There are other examples involving someone who actually drew, using a magic marker, a spot on a mouse to make it look as though something was true in terms of a tumor. And he actually did that on his way to a presentation he was giving back in the 1980s. So there are sort of extreme examples like that. Uh, and then there are the sorts of things that are happening with coronavirus research right now, where people are rushing to publication and maybe the peer review is not as rigorous as it could be or should be. So you have a study where people made it sound as though there were two different strains of the coronavirus that they had identified, and one was very virulent and the other one wasn't. This wasn't fraud. It wasn't anyone trying to make things up, but it was a rush to judgment about data that turned out to be noise. But there's also examples of what are called preprints, and these are papers that are not peer-reviewed at all, and it says that right on what's called the preprint server. Um, and these sort of go out into the world uh, without being peer-reviewed. And those of us who have followed this for a long time, and now I think a lot more reporters know that this is the case, but at the beginning of coronavirus, the pandemic, it seemed as though a lot of people were assuming these were fully-fledged papers, if you will, when they're really just in their infancy. Okay. Now, the Trump administration has long been criticized for raising questions about science in order to cast doubt on research that hurts its interests. Do you believe that this is the way that Trump has been handling the crisis right now? What Trump seems to do is find science that supports something that he wants to get out there, uh, sort of a, a claim he's making or a policy that he thinks is a good idea, and then essentially cherry pick findings or studies or papers that have come out that seem to show what he is claiming. Now, a lot of the times these studies don't even show that. And sometimes even when they do show, seem to show something, they are just not very rigorous. And, you know, that, by the way, isn't necessarily a criticism of the science itself. The scientific process is not meant for speed. And while it's completely understandable that scientists will want, and all of us want, to find some effective treatments for coronavirus, even a cure perhaps, a vaccine, to suggest that it can be done on the timeline of politics or on the timeline, frankly, of what humanity wants is problematic. Okay, well, let's go there. Let's talk about hydroxychloroquine that President Trump has been saying is a treatment for COVID-19 and the medical community says not so fast. What are your concerns? What's been happening with trials of that particular drug, which has been on the market for other conditions for many years, seems to be driven largely by politics and only partially by good science, at least so far. There are some really interesting trials that are happening now and that we'll, we'll learn something, and that's a good thing. But if you look at the initial trial that came out several weeks ago now, it was really small. Uh, it had no control group. It appears that they did not actually include some of the patients who didn't do well in the final results, which of course makes it look as though the results were much better than they really were. And people seized upon this and all sorts of policies were promulgated based on a really small problematic study that should, by the way, lead to other studies and hopefully lead us to better treatments and, and learning more about this virus, but shouldn't lead to massive changes in the idea that there's a, a treatment that 
is being withheld from people, which is now what the narrative is saying. And that's problematic. Is there a danger that you're making more people distrustful of science by highlighting its bad points? Uh, there's certainly a risk of that. And we have been conscious of that for a decade now that we've been doing Retraction Watch. It's why, for example, we created a whole category on the site and even an award called Doing the Right Thing. So it turns out, and economists uh, like to study retractions as a data set. They're relatively small, at least for economists. And they have found when you look at what happens after retraction, and they measure that by looking at citations, the number of times your work or the work in your field is cited afterward, which is you know a rough uh, proxy, if you will, for whether or not your reputation has suffered. What ha tends to happen is that when you retract a paper for uh, misconduct, for fraud, you see a decline in your citations after that. In fact, you see a decline in citations to your subfield, to your specialty. When you retract a paper for honest error, which is the kind of thing that, frankly, we need more of and that people have been doing more of. There was a case of a Nobel Prize winner who did that in January. And yes, of course, a Nobel Prize winner is unlikely to suffer any ill effects from something like that, but it still was a really good model behavior, if you will. When you retract a paper for honest error and it's clear in the retraction notice that it was because of honest error, you don't see a decline in your citations. So while I certainly think that headlines, if sensationalized, and if we focus too much on what's going wrong in science, certainly people might begin to mistrust it. Actually, what happens is that people see, oh, there are people who are trying to do the right thing. There are people who are correcting the record. How often do we see politicians do that? And yet we don't ask political reporters, how come you're focusing on the negative? I, I suppose some people do that. Uh, I think that there's a, an understanding that we have to keep our public officials accountable. Well, similarly, we need to hold our scientific institutions accountable precisely because they demand so much trust and because they deserve a lot of trust. Ivan Oransky, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Great to speak to you. And thank you for listening to this week's Babbage. While you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.